Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want for theory alone? Zero would be nice. And we're... <laughs> And the achievement for best sound goes to... <laughs> Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I worked long and hard on that intro. I'm your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also, Mike. Uh, that, that is that is your prelude to the Oppenheimer Oscars profile that you are getting in this episode, Michael. Yeah, we did the Barb part of this. Now it's the Enheimer. Mm-hmm. And we have the Barbenheimer duo of film studies. Today is going to be a whopper, just like this movie. Yeah. I, I'm I'm on cloud nine on the one hand, and then I'm perplexed that cloud nine is all, also looking over the doom of all creation, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. everybody is going hand in hand to to both these movies celebrating the end of civilization. But Bo- because both do, I think. Would it have been less on the nose if it was if the scenes the movie started with a snowball and became an avalanche at the end instead of a raindrop in a puddle that became uh, standing in front of a lake? Would that have been more subtle? Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> into all of that and more, we are discussing Oppenheimer in the Oscars profile uh, episode for you today, dear listener. If you've not seen the movie yet, it is a behemoth, and this is probably going to be uh, quite the meaty episode for you, but don't worry, we will not spoil anything about Oppenheimer in the first half of this episode. The first half will be uh, the Oscars lens, us talking about the, the production values, the performances, things of that nature. It'll be non-spoiler for you. You'll have a spoiler warning at the midway point of this episode, and then in the second half, it'll be all spoilers for the ins and outs of everything having to do with the plot of this three-hour Christopher Nolan epic, which it is quite the epic, Michael. Yes. All right. So let's start with the critical and audience receptions here, Michael, because I do want to carry over a conversation we were having during our Barbie show where I kind of half-ass reviewed Oppenheimer because I'd just seen it the once doing the Barbenheimer Mm -hmm. duo, and I was beat up. Uh, and I did this to myself. I beat myself up. I had fast food. Yeah, this isn't. You, this this can't be the second movie of that double feature. This that was a bad move. And I was yeah. I was mentally drained. I watched yeah. this movie. I wasn't in a great headspace. And I I came away thinking, oh my god, that guy was snoring. And you know that this this <laughs> movie is kind of all dialogue. I didn't expect all dialogue for most of the film. And it's obviously it's it's tremendous filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And yet I was like. Half the audience is going to hate this. And yet, the audience reception has stayed 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, 2.5K ratings, 8.8 out of 10 on IMDb, 139K votes, a cinema score, a cinema score for Barbie, right? Yep. yep. Critical receptions remain just as high, 89 Metascore, 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, 338 reviews. People love Barbenheimer. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I mean, we, we talked last episode, we talked in the pre-production, and uh, you're going to comment on it. Well, is WB trying to spike Christopher Nolan by having Barbie on the same day? And you said definitively now that is absolutely what happened. Well, I've right? been listening to other podcasts, the B.O. Boys, and, and Matt Neglio was tweeting about it at Nespec's picture there, that, that this was, yeah, like common knowledge. I didn't realize that was common knowledge. I kind of theorized it, and I wasn't really going out on a limb, knowing mm-hmm. that Christopher Nolan spent most of his career with WB, and he leaves WB, and what what happens? Well, WB just puts their biggest summer movie 
up against Christopher Nolan's big summer movie. And it, it actually like boomeranged into this. And everybody phenom. wins. Right. Everybody yeah, won. Everybody's happy. And I and my my takeaway from that is, I mean, don't try to outsmart Gen Z. Because, uh, you know, Barbenheimer became a thing because of memes and because of the Internet and because of social media. And that's just Gen Z doing what Gen Z does. Like, they do not take direction. <laughs> well, but here's the thing. Here's Can I say this, though? Because yeah. the only two people that might have outsmarted Gen Z are Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig. Because Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig got Gen Z and everybody else. But again, you know, maybe Gen Z was dead right to get everybody else to flock into these theater theaters with this memeage and this social media viral marketing because these two movies are about the problems of civilization, the potential it's the male, the male for the male fragility double feature. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not happy go lucky blockbusters go go america blockbusters go go humanity blockbusters <laughs> it is they're, not go america i they're agree not, they're not <laughs> no. and you, we have seen so many puff piece blockbusters yeah over the years and, and so no, many hollywood is, half measures i mean I mean, this is you know we we talk all the times about filmmakers taking big swings and stuff and, and putting their you know their uh, 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 trying to think of a nice word for balls on the table and being like, you know, <laughs> go for it. And, and, and you know, if you're going to criticize me, at least you're going to criticize me because I actually tried to do something here. And these are two directors who, I mean, went for it and just had to take on big entities. One is Mattel, who, you know, there's all kinds of reports that Greta Gerwig had to perform scenes for the CEO of Mattel who came to set because he thought some of the scenes were off color and off brand for them. And Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie had to perform scenes live in front of him before he, you know, rubber stamped it. And then there's Nolan taking on basically the United States government in some ways, which is, you know, I mean, these are big swings, both in themes and in the metaverse, so to speak. Greta Gerwig's Barbie is a kid's property. Right. It's a kid's movie property. And yet she makes like this definitive satire about the patriarchy Uh (laughs) and pulls it off, threads the needle. And here, Christopher Nolan, I don't know if he threads the needle. He might have just blow blew up a sack of needles. (laughs) But I think he you know, he made he shot his shot with this blockbuster, a hundred million dollar budget. He got an additional hundred million dollars to market the film. He's getting twenty percent of the gross, so Universal get it right. <laughs> had to agree to all that, and somehow it has paid off for them. Like, I wanted to have a box office report kind of discussion with you here, and we kind of had it in the pre-show a little bit about the last time we've seen a quote-unquote blockbuster, a tentpole, a, a huge performer or overperformer at the box office like Oppenheimer. I cannot remember. And I did all this research and all these films from Lincoln all the way back to Patton. Uh, you could go through JFK. And I'm looking at all these movies, and I don't see any true comparable for Oppenheimer. Just this dialogue-heavy movie, which is one kind of hard science event and two hearings, one by the FBI and one in the Senate, dueling dialogue throughout, very talky yeah. film. I'd never seen I mean, that I wonder, a I, I don't think this would have had nearly the same amount of legs, but I wonder if something like Judas and the Black Messiah, if it didn't come out during the pandemic and go right to streaming, if that could have hung in like at least in the $150, $200 million range. But this movie's going to far outpace that. You know what I mean? We, we've never seen 
we've never seen a biopic slash kind of hardcore history go this big. I mean, Apollo 13, maybe 223 worldwide back in 1995, maybe, you know, for inflation that goes up. Like, The Martian is a novel. American Sniper is a Go America novel, or a Go Go America story. It's a war story. A Beautiful Mind got a Best Picture boost. Maybe that is somewhat similar, even though that's kind of this twisty narrative. I'm looking at this list here. Patton did a 5X back in 1970, but... You know, that's not necessarily a blockbuster, a five-time multiple, $61 million on a $12 million budget. I mean, maybe it is. JFK, at least in tone, might be the tonal brother of Oppenheimer. $205 million gross from Oliver Stone on a $40 million budget. Another 5K multiplier there, right? Yeah, but where does I mean even that? <clears throat> it's I mean inflation. That's probably four hundred and fifty million. Like this is I think Oppenheimer is gonna. It's already at one eighty. So it was at one eighty through the weekend. One eighty point four. Huge overperform. Eighty two point four DBO. A ninety eight million dollar international gross. And we just got word before we hit record today that Monday it added another twelve point six million domestically. So My theater was sold out. Yeah, my I saw, IMAX, I saw it Monday afternoon, and it was like, like the first row was open. But other than that, every other seat was filled. Yeah, my IMAX and my Dolby both sold out. My my Barbie screenings were both sold out. This thing, in terms of the sellouts, and a lot of people have talked about the marketing, the Bo Boys, etc., about how sellout on the marquee might be the best form of marketing in existence <laughs> to mm. people of any age, really. And the yeah. fact that everybody knows that everybody's going to this, right? Was huge in both these movies FOMO. overperformed and yeah. and Barbie three fifty six worldwide one sixty two domestically added a Monday record of twenty six point one domestically yesterday, just incredible. That's going to be a billion dollar movie, and now oh, we're looking at Oppenheimer. What like conservative? Its floor conservatively is what four fifty, four hundred. I'm not good at this. Um, more than that, out. right? Because I mean. What did, what did uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood open at? Like, Way and that lower. reached like 400 million. Right. Yeah. Way lower. You know, like, this is going to, yeah, it opened, it was a $40 million opening and it did 377 worldwide. It's a $180 million opening. That's, Oppenheimer it's, I mean, it's is going to do half a billion easy. Oppenheimer is going to do the Martian business, gravity business, 630, 723. American sniper business is probably. It's mean, perhaps five forty-seven yeah. worldwide. Yeah, so that harkens back to a to the day, the old de- olden days. And this this weekend was the fourth fourth biggest overall box office weekend in history, and it harkens back as the biggest since Avengers Endgame. Yeah, which is all great news for the box office, all great news for theaters. And like I said to you before, like I'm I'm, I'm just I'm sour that the AMPTP, the studios are able to fall ass backwards into this windfall of cash right as the SAG strike is beginning. I guess I'll bring this up again. I'm rooting for this to ultimately put the negotiations into in favor of SAG and WGA. And maybe they're more willing to settle because they're flush with cash at Netflix. They're flush with cash now at Universal and WB with this windfall uh, perhaps you are you are quite the optimist I bet Walmart that, has been Walmart has been flush with cash for eternity and their yeah. checkout workers are on welfare and stuff yeah well <laughs> if the Oppenheimer comes out on POV P, 
POV or PVOD, that's going to make a hundred million, right? An additional hundred million. Mm-hmm. If, if if Super Mario Brothers made seventy million in its opening weekend on PVOD, according yeah. to Tom Bergerman of IndieWire, I'm not saying that Oppenheimer is going to make that in its opening weekend or do more. It's just going to over the course of its PVOD life, it'll make something around that. Yeah, I would think easily. Like these are conservative estimates at bet. Like five hundred million is wildly conservative i think for the, for what this is at right now unbelievable unbelievable yeah. that that this that deal which looked like a nolan favored deal is actually going to work out with gangbusters for universal so it's awesome it's awesome for movie theaters it's awesome for auteurs it's awesome for for us i think it's awesome for future green lights we were getting very cynical with all the ip that was just getting recycled yeah. and regurgitated right what's the next big toy line that gets a uh... <laughs> Well, toys and video games are coming, right? I mean, The Last yeah. of Us, Tomorrow, yeah. you're getting Zelda. And, yeah, I toy. this is a big move for toys, even though Transformers got stale. Barbies, we're going to get how many Barbie movies now? Right. That's, that's definitely in the pipeline. We're, we're probably not going to get Oppenheimer 2. Um, but it is, it, like, this This does feel like an original property. I know it's adapted, and obviously it's all based on historical fact and based on a book and all that. But it also does feel like an original property to me because, like, I don't know how well-known this story is amongst our generation or Gen right. Z or anyone like that, you know? And all these players are players from the 30s and 40s and 50s. It's incredible that this hard history, this is like hardcore history, right? went this what is it, Bafo Bobo crazy <laughs> that's that, eat your I heart too out, like to make up words no that's a pat stango th- uh, saying the bo boys i've been listening to them a lot they're a lot of fun if you guys want a box office podcast uh we're on pat's show uh show me the yeah. money uh so we yeah we got to get pat and clayton on here uh yeah. but uh they're very funny and uh bafo bobo i want to know how how much bobo is bafo that's what I want to know. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, Avengers Endgame would have been... I think I'm going to have a stroke. Avengers Endgame would have been the last time I also saw my movie theaters as crowded as they were, Michael. And I talked about the parking lots being full and walking a mile. But here's something. Here was, here was a development because I went to two primetime showings, a 7.30 and a, and a 6.30 IMAX, a 7.30 uh, Dolby. I haven't seen lines out the door like 50 to 100 people deep wrapping around the the steps there at our Dan, Danbury AMC since Avengers Endgame. I can't remember, you know. Oh, it was literally out the door? Out the door. Wow, it took 10, that's great. 10 minutes just to get scanned and, and get in there. Wow. That's and then awesome. they and you know that hallway mm-hmm. from the concessions, that whole hallway all the way up to the IMAX theater was a line for concessions. Wow. That's impressive. Unbelievable. That's got to be a couple hundred people easily. And when you went into the bathroom, it was a swamp. It was totally disgusting. <laughs> Everybody was like, just don't fall down in here. I mean, because everybody slip slide. No, it was disgusting. <laughs> they, they actually fixed it for I, the later uh, showings, but everybody was complaining about it. I went to see Barbie on that Thursday or Friday, whatever it was, and I took my mother, so I was able to park in a handicap spot, which was nice. And then I went to Oppenheimer for the first time, I think on Saturday, and I had to mm-hmm. park a mile away, too, and I was just, it was hot and sweaty, and I was just MFing the entire walk up. I'm like, they better <laughs> never do this again, releasing two movies like this. How dare they make me have to walk this mo- amount? One walk, and yet the movie won you back over. So, yeah, again, yeah. a testament to this movie. But this right. felt like a film festival, like, 
Tribeca or New York where I'm waiting in a line of a hundred, couple hundred people or something. Yeah. I, I, I was just so thrilled. I had such a shit-eating grin on my face. It's nice to, like, have an event, and it's nice that the to have something that lives up to the hype. Two things. Yeah, yeah I, I hope... Uh, I hope we do this film study justice. I, I know we kind of got into a little bit of the composition thoughts in this box office discussion, but I do want to mention a few narrative devices that Nolan used here that a lot of people have been kind of dissecting, and I think they're pretty important. Uh, the black and white footage involving Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Louis Straws, and Alden Ehrenreich's Senate hearing, uh, that is third-person omniscient narration according to nolan and according to everybody that's the quote-unquote real story from yeah, the objective truth so he says and oppenheimer's memories are everything in color and, yes. and that device has been used before but we, we have a second person subjective vantage point for all the in in living color stuff yeah and the script itself was written in a first person point of view which matt damon on an interview said he had never seen done before well, isn't it like Come, it comes full circle where you're taught not to do something, but until you reach a certain prestige and then you do that, that like don't write in first person, don't write your scripts in first person. Don't yeah, what did your... I say second person for? You, you, that's you. Oh, I'm a dope. But yeah, <laughs> sorry. It's, don't, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And so you reach the prestige of someone like Christopher Nolan and then you do the exact thing you're not supposed to do. And it's, oh, you're a genius. <laughs> yeah, he's breaking this, this yeah. rule in a way. And you, ha- you leave open a lot of these scenes to interpretation that these are potentially distorted vantage points because right. this guy is in mea culpa phase while he's thinking about his entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and I, it's, it, I mean, you also have, I mean, because it is black and white, because it is color, you have, and it's three hours long. It's, it's two movies essentially. Right. And they're, I mean, and they're woven together beautifully right. by the editing. And it's in Christopher Nolan fashion because they are woven together. You're, it's a jumping timeline. You're not linear in the timeline. You go back and forth. And the A and B storylines are the two movies. And that's why you do have this long runtime. And I thought, I mean, I know you're going to have some nitpicks with the editing later on as far as like scene to scene transition. But I, I don't see how this wouldn't get an editing nom because you have so much movie here with these two movies that are intertwined, that make it nonlinear, black and white, going to color, back and forth like that. Uh, you have a lot of twists that live up to the hype of their twists that are sufficient payoffs for the, the hype they're given. You have at no less than 20 characters, and they're all white, so they all look the same. You have no less than <laughs> 20 characters who you have to keep track of because they're all given their own moment and their own scenes in this film because that's how important they are to the history of what happened here. I, like, it all makes sense which I think is a credit to the editing and obviously to Christopher Nolan's direction, but to the editing, I mean, it's a, it's a, not a linear story, but it's a linear understanding. You're not really ever lost as to what's going on, which is amazing because there are so many moving parts to this movie. Nolan rejected the use of composite characters to the point where, again, he's breaking this old tradition, especially in historical biopics of doing so. I mean, look at zero dark 30, that, protagonist is right. a composite character of multiple women hunting down Osama bin Laden via the CIA, right? Mm-hmm. And and here, Nolan said, I want an ensemble of the best actors on the planet, uh, or some of the best actors available, he said, and he wanted them to all play these legends in, in science and politics, etc. And they all took below their rates, 
they all, you know, acted in these, you know, quote unquote, no small parts. And some of them, I mean, we're going to get into it, just knocked them out of the park. Uh, but it's, yeah, balancing so many moments, like you're saying, for so many characters. That I would be shocked, absolutely shocked if the screenplay is not nominated. Yeah. I would be shocked if the film editing is not nominated, especially with the physical act of editing this film. Yeah, no kidding. Jennifer <laughs> Jennifer LeMay, or, or Lame, excuse me, I, I'm hoping it's LeMay. I'm hoping the pronunciation of your last name is LeMay. <laughs> sounds better than Lame. Jack Lame, remember from Anchorman 2? <laughs> but the tempo of this film is so fast-paced that I can do nothing but high-five everybody involved. It's She is a brilliant editor yeah she's got she's had an awesome career that's been overdue for an oscar nomination so i I would go so far as to say this film is now the front runner for adapted screenplay and film editing probably picture right now too (laughs) yeah i mean director picture we're gonna get there i would agree yeah i would agree both all right so performances and we you know I, i wrote down everybody's you know all the big names here it's like 20 something deep mm-hmm. we have eight eight oscar nominees three acting oscar winners in this screenplay an additional two that have won screenplays acting in this film screenplay oscars that is and damon and and, and branagh this is one of the most star-studded white ensembles very white. Very in white. the history of the world I mean, that's going to be the biggest quabble, but I mean, it is based on history and a lot of the, the historical figures. Like you said, they're not using composite characters and these were all white people. Not that that's an excuse or an explanation. I do. I well, would we argue. Do, we, we doomed the world. We did. Right. I sure. Mean, this is not like a right. high five. There is that. Movie. There is that. And I would <laughs> still is... argue there's there were places in which there could have been more diversity within the cast. But nonetheless. Sure. OK. Yeah. Um, even though there are. There is this much star power attached, and there are this many Oscar winners attached, even in these like smaller roles, even though there's no small parts, like you said. So many names all throughout this, and yet it's still... This is Killian Murphy's movie, through and oh through. God. I mean, this is as lead actor nomination a performance as you can get, and that was what the selling point was, apparently, from Nolan to at least Matt Damon and Emily Blunt, watching an interview from those two. Damon was recapping... His, uh, his conversation with Christopher Nolan, how he needed, he was telling everyone, like, I need you to buy into the idea that I'm putting the entirety of this movie on Killian Murphy's back. This is Killian's movie, and I need people who are willing to work towards that end, that are going to give it to Killian Murphy, and this is his movie. Uh, and Killian Murphy himself, when he was, you know, phoned by Christopher Nolan, was on uh, in an interview saying, this is the type of phone call you only get once, maybe twice in your life if you're an actor, if you're extremely lucky. And so he knew right away, right after he got off the phone with Christopher Nolan, it was time for him to go to work. And he went right to work getting ready for this role. So uh, he pulls it off. And the fact that there are so many stars and Oscar winners and A-listers in this movie, and yet this is clearly the Killian Murphy statement piece. I, I, of all the categories that this is, this movie is the front runner in for the Oscars right now, lead, I would put lead actor right up there as two. Yeah, amen. I co-sign all of it. I was worried about Kill- Killian Murphy's trailer performance because mm-hmm. his oh shit face, oh shit, I've ruined the world face was all, all throughout that trailer. And that was a misdirect because those scenes were few and far between. Yeah, you sold the movie that way. And they sold this movie in a particular way where watching the film is very different. And I am totally blown away by the next level. Can we talk about that for a second? Because 
Okay, yeah, I agree they sold the movie in that it was going to be more action-filled. But also, I don't know, did you actually think we were going to see, like, the bombing of people in a Christopher Nolan film? Like, That's why I thought this was going to be more of a talky movie, because I couldn't fathom that's what we were going to get. I wondered how he would handle it. And the narrative device actually colors this, because there's not a drop of blood in this entire right. movie. So th- there's not a scene of gore. I was wondering if we're going to look at Hiroshima, Hiroshima Mon Amour for the last hour. And this was going to be, you know, a human rights violation film. Yeah, and it still is. It is. But I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine Christopher Nolan, of all people, I mean, he made a Batman movie with like barely any fighting, you know? <laughs> I can't, he wasn't, I couldn't imagine him being the guy that's going to get into the horrors of body dysmorphia that came from or you know that came from a result of these atrocities that's true mike but i still you know you watch the trailer and it's upbeat and there's a lot of scientific experiments there's all the hard science happening and you come away from his last movie dunkirk and tenant and those are essentially you're on the move one action scene after another I did not expect this to be the West Wing level of <laughs> action sequences. Like, Succession has just as many explosions <laughs> as Oppenheimer did. I, you know, I, I really it dropped my jaw to watch this movie for the first time, but, I mean, he still makes it work. And the fact that you got so many great actors giving this movie the scope that it needed is something that Christopher Nolan kept banging the table for. And Robert Downey Jr., this is his best work. No, by far. Since since Endgame, certainly. Yeah. And and, it, and it's amazing, just like Murphy, the, the restraint in his performance. This is a poker game for both these actors for much of the, pl- the screenplay. And they, they let it rip at certain times. But I didn't even register the nuanced interactions between these two, and we'll get into it in spoilers, on, the, on my first watch. I just felt like it was odd, and I didn't get it until, you know, you get it by the end of the movie. Right. But you you add so much to the, to the rewatch value of this movie just based on those two. Not to jump the gun, but we haven't talked about sound, but, like, picture, sound, production design, supporting actor for RDJ, score, director, and I would even put Killian Murray. I don't know. This has to be minimum six nominees right now. Yeah, we have, we're, 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 we're yeah. still building up towards it. Now, Emily Blunt, I've seen her very high in a lot of supporting actress lists. She is actually playing because she's playing a character in the living color of Oppenheimer's memory and the memory of his wife, Kitty. Like, her intensity is scary at times, but she is she is over the top in, in very unflattering ways with her behavior throughout the film, and yet... She is such, uh, what do they call that in, in Greek mythology? The uh, the person who announces things. Oh, God. Don't no, you remember your cla- classical? No, absolutely. The herald. The her- She's such a herald. <laughs> okay, good. Glad we Thank got God. there. Thank God. Thank God it came back. I, had, I was of zero. I couldn't have been of less help. <laughs> you know, the horn. She blows the horn. And warns him so many times. You might as well have asked me to do your taxes, but can I do them for you in Mandarin? I would have been of equal help. (laughs) She is the herald, and 
she has the words of wisdom for Oppenheimer throughout this story. She puts him in check throughout this story, just like Florence Pugh does. Okay. Like the, and yet the women are so unflatteringly portrayed. And because because Oppenheimer's character is such a womanizer and such a sleazeball, he's remembering all of these unhappy women in his life and blaming himself for the, for for in part for why they are so unhappy and he's remembering how much he's used and dismissed them so blunt's performance she has a scene which is going to clearly i think be her oscar real scene if she does find herself nominated and it's at the end of this three hour ride but her alcohol the 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 character's alcohol issues Mm -hmm. especially in the first 40 minutes and i have an issue with the first 40 minutes of this movie that we'll talk about but it comes off almost as parody to me i could not stop thinking about that inside Amy Schumer skit where she's uh, making fun of Connie Britton's character from Friday Night Lights and every scene she just has a bigger and bigger wine glass. And it just seemed like like they were they were towing that line with the alcohol issues with Emily Blunt. And she's like, let's celebrate. The baby's crying in the background. And she's throwing herself mm. and immediately he says no. And then she turns to evil. It's just, had it not been for that one uber right. mega powerful scene at the end that she has, I would almost attribute the her performance to another man Christopher Nolan just seems to have difficulty writing well-rounded oh, yeah. female characters and yet this is like this hyper real rationalization at least you you would still like a Christopher Nolan female character to be rounded at some point in the right. future that would be nice <laughs> and it's not Florence Pugh it's not Emily no. Blunt in this movie <laughs> like a Bechdel test or scoffed at here <laughs> right uh no and it's not and it's it's not good but it, he explains why through the narrative device of the story i mean right. this is clear um and yet it's really smart per- of him he really did insulate his issues as far as diversity of cast and writing it's like well it's not it's not my fault these are all white people historically it's not my fault i can't i, I haven't written a well-rounded female character uh, this is through his lens not mine <laughs> Well, that's the question for spoilers, too. Is like this movie just blaming these people right. <laughs> as well. So let's just, you know, let's not bring anybody else into the blame game of it, right? right. I, I don't know. Uh, anyway, I just, look, I think Florence Pugh's performance with some lousy material is still very strong. Sure. Even though I feel like those are some of the worst written scenes of the film. I think you would agree. Yeah. Uh, the The... Now I have become death scene. The first time we see that, oh, good god, ridiculous! Uh, and otherwise, I need to apologize to Matt Damon. <laughs> I loved him in this, and all of those exposition dumps. I mean, if you throw a few really funny f words into those those trailer moments, like a few f words, just makes everything okay. It just makes dialogue better. That's that's what I learned. Was he Thank the you. only source of comedy in this movie? <laughs> He's, very, he's, well, he's got some great one-liners, whether he's dressing someone. But I also don't remember laughing at any other time. With with two exceptions. Uh, it's Benny Safdie's character. And that's Gallo's humor to the... To the yeah, that's uh, true. The Gallo's humor's line was good, yeah. But even that even that was set up on the tee by Matt Damon. And then there's the other character about talking about his honeymoon in Kyoto. That was not <laughs> funny. That made me angry. <laughs> Uh, it was evil, funny, yeah. but no, yeah. that, that upset me because that absolutely happens. Anyway, that's spoiler stuff. We'll get into it. Well, yeah. Well, I don't know. It's, are we spoiling that they're going to drop the bomb and 
on a Japanese city and they're trying to choose. Anyway, uh, Casey Affleck, he might be a terrible human being, he, but good God. So his he'll be invited to in Venice, this movie. is what you're saying? Oh, yeah. What uh, the hell? Yeah, no, he I'm was great. terrified. <laughs> terrified of him. He was, in this he was great. Dead eyes, like you have written down, absolutely. That's the thing. I mean, when you ask Oscar winners to take on smaller roles, they're going to be the greatest smaller roles in cinema history. And, and like Barbie, I think you got a lot of well-known people that are going to become exponentially better known after this movie. Alden Ehrenreich reminds us all why everybody thought he was the next big star after Hail Caesar to the point where he got cast as Han Solo, that hubris, <laughs> mm-hmm. and thinking somebody could redo Harrison Ford. But he he is fantastic in this. Jason Clark, the best, the greatest a-hole of all time Has in history. Has and Dowd ever been in a movie together? There's no way. <laughs> like, why watch it? It'd be unwatchable. <laughs> They'd be so The, the forces terrifying. of evil that would come out of that picture. <laughs> Josh He's Hartman. a harbinger of death. He's yeah. an asshole all the time. They're just great at those roles. How about former bimbo in the minds of people that underestimated him? I think we were fans of his in the faculty and back in the day. Josh Hart couldn't even recognize him. Reminded me of so many of these brilliant, arrogant, matter of fact, guys that i knew growing up from prep schools and whatever from wall street and whatever he got that guy down to a t mike i was stunned that was josh hartnett i did not in my first viewing i did not know that was josh hartnett and faculty is one of my favorite movies of all time (laughs) and is he the one person who's gotten older and his voice got higher well i think he's filled out he's actually still in great shape i I don't know i think you know he's he, he looks once you know it's him you you know it's him right you see it yeah i agree with that but yeah i was i mean i did not see that as him at all i don't know why i just i was blind to it but i agree he was fantastic and then benny safty might have the most memorable role in the movie talk about a three-sided dice he's playing the the guy who actually makes the bigger bomb yeah right uh in the hydrogen bomb eventually so yeah, best achievement by a white ensemble maybe ever. <laughs> it's either this or every movie made prior to 1955, yeah. Okay, production <laughs> values. You, you said it already. Sound might be the most Just, obvious. Just, do we have to talk about it? <laughs> I mean, The rumbling. How do you get those sounds? Did he actually destroy an atomic bomb? That's the only thing I can think of. Like, shaking an aluminum pan or an aluminum thing in front of a microphone isn't giving you these noises. They look. They did this in miniatures. That was the it's crazy. That blew my mind. It's crazy. I wrote down. I assumed because I read that these explosions were all real, and I read that he used X amount of TNT and X amount of everything. And I assumed when I when I started this doc that he just kind of did those explosions out there, and it was a big fireworks display type of stunt. Right. I did not know it was forced perspective that these were tiny explosions and that he did it in the dark and kind of it was an in-camera trick in many And instances. we should have learned because we know the hospital scene from The Dark Knight, which has now famously become it was a miniature thing and blah, blah, blah. I, I, it drops my draw. I, I, it, so VFX, just in terms of the trickery of it, yeah. 
has to be nominated. And so, uh, it's one of Nolan's underrated aspects of all his movies. Like his last six movies, only one, only Dunkirk wasn't nominated for VFX, and three of those six won the category. And how about the decision to just zoom in on a pint glass, pour a fresh Guinness in there, and then use that, this freshly poured Guinness, to represent the quantum realm inside of J. Robert Oppenheimer's mind as a young student. I mean, just brilliant. Brilliant! brilliant. Yeah. yeah. God, he's good. <laughs> he's good. He's good. <laughs> that's all I saw was Guinness. <laughs> no, Would I it don't shock know what you they... if that's what he's come out and said, though? There was no CGI used in this movie. And yet, what in the hell did he film to get that look? Of the stars, of the black hole, of the... Well, how did he make the background shake in the way they did? There was zero CGI. What is that? What is he recording? What is he filming? Is he filming an actual black hole? Uh, Yeah, he has to be, right? (laughs) They tricked us. All of that shit is trickery. It's real physical matter. And if they they go out and campaign on on, this is, you know, this is all... uh, Why can't I think of the word right now? The, this is none of this is CGI. This is all uh, practical. practical. It's he, all practical. It's all practical. Wouldn't he win that in a runaway? Isn't he winning VFX in a runaway? You remember the Stewie skit where he had the fuzzy in his eye, the fuzzy, and and, the, and it, it was he couldn't get away and out of his vision, just like the little squiggly line. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It did a whole haiku yeah. to it. <laughs> squiggly. <laughs> That's what they filmed for the VFX of this movie, the cutaways to Oppenheimer's inner torment during his college years. (laughs) And then the audacity of blaring horns and all the violin to the point where you, you actually put crackling nuclear sound effects, all of that into the score. I've heard a lot of people say this is a horror movie score. Terrifying. Um, Yeah, I agree. Ludwig Göransson, his best—I mean, he's already won for Black Panther, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know how he's denied again. I mean, there's so much musical work in this, but then the theme of this movie—those, mo- I mean, if you don't get goosebumps when the, the when that sound blares, and 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 when they choose to use that heavy sound, strings, that theme, very heavy on the strings, very—it's almost like a a metronome type clicking in it too. Unbelievable. Now, cinematography is another shoo-in because they invented black and white IMAX film for this movie. (laughs) That was an invention. They didn't have that. And it goes beyond that, too. I mean, obviously, that's something that's phenomenal. And there's all kinds of shots, both in black and white and color, the close-ups and reading people's faces. And it's shot all on IMAX and yada, yada, yada. But even when there's just still shots of the camera in a stationed position... Filming an art, uh, a conversation that's happening 20 feet in front of it. The camera is in such a way that the backdrop is so positioned, the blocking is so right, it looks like an oil painting. It's a master class in close-ups. You have all the vi- vistas of New Mexico and the, the establishing shots of all these European colleges of Princeton. And then all of the close-ups on the... Like I said, all the, all the all, I mean, a cinematography plays into all these VFX shots yep, too, all these absolutely. in-camera tricks, too. And you're right. I think Hoyt Van Hoytema is overdue. He's been nominated a couple times, but he's overdue for a win. It's just this is so 
simple stuff. Not simple, obviously, in technique, but it's so obvious. This is Oscar player in so many categories. Would you bet right now? We're getting it. We're almost there in terms of an Oscar lens. But would you bet this is going to be the the nomination leader of the I year? I mean, if I, I listen. If you were to ask for odds on whether or not this would be the nomination leader right now, you'd be, you'd be like minus twelve hundred. Because here are the yeah, here are the coattail nominations, and I wouldn't even call them coattail, but I would probably say these are the the few that have a harder time. Like production design, we've proclaimed it, and we knew that they built the town, and we knew that they built the tower, and they built the cyclotrons, and they built the isn't Minecraft. this just as impressive as the news of the world when they built the town? Right. And then got think about think about of all the set decoration. Never mind all the period specific stuff, but all of the the scientific mm-hmm. stuff. Like whatever, whatever that. I think production design has to be a shoe in. All right, so I mean, again, so all right, so production design's a shoe in. Costumes, all right. Costumes is probably crowded. Yeah, I would think if this gets to costume design, I would say okay. Look, it is a period piece, so and we know the Academy loves those, and there are a lot of uh, soldier costumes, scientist costumes, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that there's any one standout look other than the cigarette hanging out of Killian Murphy's mouth with the hat, which is Oppenheimer, yeah. you know, so I don't know that that goes to costume design much, but it would be a show of strength nomination, I think. And there is Bar- a way, Barbie a Dune, path to there. Yeah, yeah Barbie Dune, Flower Moon... Napoleon Wonka color purple. It's going to be hard to get in there. Priscilla, yeah. Rustin, Maestro, poor things. And that's just adding to Chevalier, yep. Asteroid City, Mermaid. Uh, yeah, probably not costumes. Makeup and hairstyling. I mean, they got all the 1940s hairstyles here. 1930s if you take some of these people and put them side by side with the actual historical figures, th- th- it looks great, the makeup and hairstyling. Now, my mm-hmm. one <laughs> serious groan is at the very end we get a a, yeah. a later in life look and there's all, all they're all done in elderly makeup now made to be old and it's like my god why does J. Robert Oppenheimer look like a conehead I thought the old person makeup was jarringly bad like I almost want to disqualify it from that but it's also only for, it's a for a total of what 45 seconds right but what if I told you that Tilda Swinton actually played <laughs> one of those committee board members overseeing the FBI case? I thought you were going to say it was Tilda Swinton playing Killian Murphy, playing J. Robert Oppenheimer in old person makeup. No, Mr. Magoo, the, the one that was actually Tilda Swinton. Did you know that? I did not. No. Sure. <laughs> All right. So my prediction's 12. I had 12 as well. Holy shnikes. Yeah. Definites. Sound, score, cinematography, VFX, editing, that's five. Production design, picture, that's seven. So you're you, no, you don't have either actor as a definite. I, I think if I rewrote this, I probably wrote this after my first viewing or my second viewing. I, I would probably move production design into the very, very likely category and yep. move Murphy into the definites and but i, I think robert downey jr is a definite I too, think they so are I, too yeah i might have an eight definites and adapted screenplays <laughs> are there nine definite nominations i mean look we're we're in the and if you get all those you have to put nolan in director you have to you have to so this is like a 10 definite <laughs> that was my over under i was 10 and a half is what i was going to do as my over under yeah which so, is insane so, for how conservative i've been with over unders for 
up to this point in first half. Well, I guess it's the second half of the year technically, but pre-fall movies. Screenplay, Robert Downey Jr., Murphy, director. So Emily Blunt, costumes... And et cetera, et cetera, Mua. Those those are going to be harder to come by, perhaps. But Emily Blunt is also overdue. Mm-hmm. We we watched her get snubbed for A Quiet Place, and then the Screen Actors Guild just vote for her to win that category. She's beloved. Did she get nominating for uh, Mary Poppins? She did, right? I, can't I don't think. No? I don't think so. I can't no, remember. she's not Oscar nominated yet. She's never been Oscar nominated. Okay. She, she's overdue, and she's gotten like six Globe noms. Something like that. Yeah, this Five is going to be this is going to be a monster. This is going to be this a, is going to be the Irishman, Mank. Yeah. Now the caveat is, those are you know you're listing movies that had double digit noms and very very few wins. Mm-hmm. I don't. Man, this is good. This was this was more enjoyable than the Irishman or Mank was on first viewing. I think for mm-hmm. I think it's far more accessible. Yeah, this could this could win a couple. It could it could be Oppenheimer's day to be yeah. honest, but I, I mean maybe may, maybe the film suffers a backlash because it's such a white heavy man heavy film down the line. I don't know. So that I guess that's a question to ask here as we get into spoilers. Yeah. But it's I don't know under after after the honeymoon period, how is this movie received by the Academy? Mm. We'll, we'll find out. All right, let's spoil it. Spoilers ahead! Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing to ever happen in the history of the world? This is a spoiler warning. This is the spoiler section for Oppenheimer, the Oscars profile brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. If you've not seen the movie yet, this is a good place for you to hit pause on us. Go check it out at your local theater. If you've seen the movie already, this is where you want to be. It'll be all spoilers, all about the plot of Oppenheimer, the Oscars profile review brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. All right, we did a fair amount of gushing in the first half of this episode, the non-spoiler section, but this is not mm-hmm. a perfect movie, and we alluded to this as well in the non-spoiler part. There is just some bad dialogue and just bad scenes, especially for me in the first 40 minutes. I know you have some other ones throughout, but mm-hmm. the first 40 minutes, I thought up there with some of the like most questionable stuff we've seen in Nolan's career. I mean, it's an unsustainable pacing. Oppenheimer meets, sleeps with, cheats on, and loses to a separate <laughs> marriage the Gene yeah. Tatlock character, Florence Pugh's character, within like a five to ten minute stretch. It's the it's the same pacing as Elvis last year, the Boz Lerman movie, where Elvis is entering the military and then he's also a, a, a washed up movie star within a five, ten minute stretch. It's just too quick and too much is going on and packed into this short a period of time. Breakneck pacing. To, and, and add to that all the scenes where you're expositing the uh, birth of quantum mechanical study in 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 the in the world in Berkeley or mm-hmm. in the U.S. rather you're you you're watching literally by newspaper headlines World War II breakout the splitting of the atom happening and then Michael you're weaving in all of the Cold War politics right right and people are talking while you're doing all this and rushing through history in this way everyone is just responding razor sharp quick witted layers of entendre into everything they say, which is not how people speak. No. 
It was, this was my worry for a dialogue-heavy Nolan film, because he's done this before, even in The Dark Knight. When you re-watch The Dark Knight and the mayor is having a conversation with with uh, any anybody in that movie, or I don't want to blame that, that actor or whatever, but I mean, he, they're having to deal with just expo dumps that are brutal yeah. and are nonsense, and they're just all elevated, stylized dialogue just to get these points across. For clarity's sake, I would say... You can follow it, and you, yeah, and it does help. But, but I, I would also say I would, I could argue that it's totally superfluous. I don't, at least to me, like I don't know that I lose. Look, the first forty minutes, a lot of it is on top of the exposition. It's, it's to me, it's hammering home. Look how important J. Robert Oppenheimer is. He's not just self-important; he is important. Look how much everyone respects him. Look how arrogant he is. Yada yada yada. I think you get the same impression of that character just with the first scene with Matt Damon in the classroom where Damon's like, you know, I've heard everything about you. You're, you're a prick and, but I still want you to lead the Manhattan project. And the scene before that, where Josh Hartnett's like, Hey, your left leaning political bullshit that you're bringing into the classroom is keeping me from being able to recommend you to come on the Manhattan project. So drop it all. If you keep Mm -hmm. those two scenes, I don't know that you lose anything by not having any, any of the other scenes that are, Printed towards the look how important J. Robert Oppenheimer is in those first 40 minutes. I think he fell in love with things like the Chevalier incident, which was essentially a a great scene where his best friend in Berkeley asked to ask him to commit treason if he Mm -hmm. wants to. He's like, if you want to get word to the Soviets, I am a communist and I can help you do that. Or this other guy, Elterton, can do that. Mm hmm. And it leads to another great scene where Casey Affleck's current colonel Posh interrogates him and he brings up the cock and bull story. And, of course, this gets him into all kinds of hot water. And you got a couple of follow-up, two good scenes later on. So you're looking at four good scenes that rest on the setup of the Chevalier incident, which has to be set up with all this boring-ass scenes you know in the union of the f-a-e-c-t mm-hmm. and and whatnot so yeah th- that's what had to happen nolan fell i could see him rationalizing that you know i could see i mean again it makes i understand why they're all there i just don't think you lose anything if you wanted to have a more evenly paced film by taking some of those out i i feel like some scenes he lets breathe in in terms of the expo dumps we're, we're like that party where him and his brother need to be characterized. And I thought it was a brilliant choice to focus in on the the character of Jackie, the brother's mm-hmm. to-be fiance, his future sister-in-law. And you know it's an Oppenheimer's memory, and he's remembering her being mortified and, and, and hurt by how Oppenheimer treats her. Right. How he dismisses her. never remember her, her name, yeah. The big picture made it, yeah, very clear uh connections to to again Nolan's difficulty with female characters but this is him admitting as much through this character of Oppenheimer in a way so that's giving on the one Nolan hand, an awful an awful lot of credit you're giving him a lot of credit there uh i i still think the scene kind of works because of that moment and yet i mean it's a fascinating moment however you're dealing with a lot of setup for the Florence Pugh scenes and, and her role in the plot is as this harbinger that puts him into crisis in the middle of the film during what was other guy wise going to be such a runaway train 
March to War Manhattan Project sequence that you needed to slow it down for some for some you know comprehension of what's happening and you put in the mystery of Gene Tatlock's death was it a suicide mm-hmm. it was a very strange suicide because she was dead with her you know how, how do you face. drown yourself yeah how do you drown yourself like that and they actually showed in the in the in the film his brain thinking of a CIA guy mm-hmm. with gl- gloved hands drowning her so all of that red scare stuff needed to come back in a huge way you know the McCarthyism stuff and all the pre-World War II Cold War politics had to come back in a big way. So they had to seed it all in the first half. They just took, I mean, in a way, they t- took too much time to do it. I wish the 40 minutes that we got pre-Manhattan Project was 25 minutes. Yeah, I agree with that. But, I mean, to me, that's the biggest glaring issue with this and it, it didn't lose me for any point. And I, like I said, like we still understand why it was all there. Well, we watch him sell his soul. We watch him sell out his beliefs in these labor unions and in, in his intellectual uh, uh, magnetism towards communist ideas, right? I mean, a lot of these ideas we've worked into our government, for Christ's sake. Do you Everybody's think he <laughs> sold it out? Or do you think he genuinely he was arrogant enough to believe that his opinion would always carry weight. And once he saw that it didn't, he had to talk himself into the fact that it, that it wouldn't. That's why we you know, we made the bomb. It's, we can't describe how to, we can't tell them how to use it scene. And then that's when the regret comes in. I think he wanted his cake and he wanted to be able to eat it too. He wanted to, his younger self wanted to be involved in the movement, wanted to, give to the causes like the Spanish Civil War and yet he he wanted to play it a little carefully and not join the party but he was he was joined at the hip with the party in all but name mm-hmm. and he kind of skirted the same wrath in the 1960s McCarthy era that his brother got that that his protege at Berkeley mm-hmm. got the the sex drive character there good good actor sorry I forgot his name and then that 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 Chevalier got like they were all exiled right so yeah I feel like he was very clever in how he avoided all that and he he mentions to his brother like you got to be more careful but he sold out his own beliefs. And we know he, had, you know, he was attracted to Gene Tatlock because of who she was. She was a psychologist, and coming off his youth of really needing psychologists to get over a lot of his issues, he was such a sheltered child. I watched this whole documentary about his childhood and how they were, how he was just bullied, uh, ridiculously bullied when he was a young kid, and he actually got started mixing it up with other kids his own age. And he actually just took it. And you watched him just, you watched this backstory kind of filling in so much of his motivations. And here he is trying to avoid all that again. And yet, yeah, it's still, I mean, I wish, I wish they chose some of those scenes rather than what we got here. But uh, I, then again, I'm glad that we didn't go into all of his childhood years. We, I mean, the Apple story was kind of enough. And that was a, that's a powerful story. Yeah. A true story. Yeah. It, it does lend itself well, especially to the cinema, too, even though the, the ending of it. How does no one question why he just took an apple out of Niels Bohr's hands and threw it away? <laughs> right. So that, those are some obvious worsts. Some obvious bests 
Look at everything Manhattan Project, like I said, Runaway Train Cinema, this is Nolan at his most, right? This is 50 minutes of Nolan just going off. This is big Hollywood movie making. You got your bring the team together scenes with Matt Damon. That might be the best of the film to start it off. Well, the complexity of some of these characters, and Damon included, is some of the best, too. I mean, Damon has to do, he's got to be this stoic character throughout, and yet he's walking this tightrope between, I no matter what, we have to beat the Nazis, I have to keep this project. Yes, I'm willing to bring in J. Robert Oppenheimer, despite his questionable political leanings, because I think, one, I can trust him, and two, he's the best man for the job. So I'm going to keep an eye on him, but I can't have anyone else being suspicious of him, so that's why I'm going to intervene on his behalf and send Casey Affleck's character overseas at one point. But all the while, it's, it's, him, it's Damon being still just being a general here, so it's, it's really fascinating stuff. I loved that dynamic, and I loved how he, Oppenheimer and the scientists got one over on Damon, r- r- literally brought him over to their side, and, and totally undercut all the compartmentalization and how that ultimately bites them in the ass, this Cold War spycraft storyline yeah. of the quote-unquote British scientist who's really a German scientist, uh, Bader, mm-hmm. becoming that mole, becoming that person who leaked everything to the Soviets and how that plays out and plays into the Louis Straws stuff later on. We'll get into that. But yeah, I, I thought the, the past scenes just bone chilling stuff and then you have you have that worked into and really just if anything halted the momentum of these scenes these are like huge red flags in terms of where we're going in the story so at no point i mean you know this going in at no point is this going to be a scientific triumph storyline we're always watching this with the wrath of god fully we know the wrath of god's coming so prometheus quote at the beginning we are watching this Trinity test sequence, building the tower, loading the A-bomb, dealing with the, you know, the rainstorm, waiting out the storm, all the gallows humor bets, everybody preparing for the blast and watching the blast. We are wa- watching this with sick fascination, aren't we? It's kind of complex, too, because that should be the more complicated issue, right? And it's the more straightforward story. It's humans mm-hmm. building this weapon of God mm-hmm. and just having the massive power to use it as they want and wield it as unruly as we know we have in our history versus the interpersonal conflict, which is the other storyline between Strauss and, and uh, Oppenheimer and so on and all the hearings. And that's the more complex stuff. So it's kind of like this weird dichotomy of like the complicated science of everything is the more linear and more easy to digest story, which I think is a credit Mm -hmm. to Nolan as well, versus the what should be simpler to talk about, which is just humans talking to each other. That's where the complexities of the dynamic of relationships come in and all that. I have uh, friends who are NASCAR fans and they they admit as much where, where they buy tickets to the Indy 500 to watch the wrecks. Right. That's their sick fascination. And yet they know all the strategy behind it as well. And they, you know, that you, 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 you buy a ticket for the car wrecks and yet you stay for all the other stuff. Right. And I think to kind of land on how this film was marketed and what you were delivered as an audience member, you were delivered so much more than what you thought. And 
Nolan made a point in a lot of his interviews to talk about how he wanted this quote-unquote iconic celebration. We did it. <laughs> yeah. On the aircraft carrier moment of him being hoisted on the shoulders, you know, with the American flag in the background to be immediately thrust and turned on a dime into this horrifying reckoning sequence where they literally m- mimic the atomic bomb exploding with the big light. That's what in the, he's in the celebration when he's giving speech. the celebration speech. Yeah. And we watch, again, without a drop of blood, but we watch Christopher Nolan's eldest daughter play a character of a girl staring at J. Robert Oppenheimer and like this cartoonish, loose, flopping, extra skin flying off of her face. Yeah to the bright lights of a, of a bomb exploding and all those sound effects. Again, it's not gory. And it plays, but... it, it plays on a couple of levels because you see uh, the whole movie you're, you're watching Oppenheimer struggle because it's told in a lot of nonlinear fashion. You're watching him struggle with what he's done. Like what evil half I wrought. The hammer had to drop. We knew that was coming again. When you buy the ticket, you knew what you were buying the ticket for. Christopher Nolan's not going to say, yay, look what we built. Yeah, right. <laughs> Boy, what a success Nagasaki was, huh? Yeah. You're going to escalate. Of course, we're going to escalate to the hallucinated corpse of a burnt body on the ground. We're going to go outside and watch Pukey Robinson puke (laughs) on the bicycles. It's disgusting. And we're going to have to take it because that's what we, again, we bought a ticket for this. So the central event delivered and the spectacle of it. Like, I don't know. If I I watch this movie 20 years from now, This is heavy-handed, but you knew you were going in for a heavy-handed uh, third act. No, I mean, but so that's why, or at least you you knew you were going to get a, thir- a heavy-handed response to the quote-unquote success moment. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I think it doesn't. You know, if you have the critical thinking skills at all, you should not see bombings of any kind as a wild you know, one-sided success you know so here's so here that's i guess the two conversation pieces going forward are what do we think of the third act and how he brings it all home between this conflict between robert donnie jr's character and cillian murphy's character and what does it all mean is this more complex than we think or is this just some wholesome meditation on hubris and the dangers of, of the war machine? Well, I firmly believe, I, I guess it's up to interpretation. And my interpretation was, I, I do, and again, this is a movie, it's not necessarily a historical artifact. But based on the way this is told to us, mm-hmm. I buy the idea that Oppenheimer wrote his own arrogance into making the bomb. And then once he saw, I, I, I buy the story I was told, once he saw, oh shit, if we have a bomb, they're going to make a bigger bomb, and then we're going to make a bigger bomb, and anytime we have a bigger bomb, we're going to find an excuse to use the bigger bomb. So I buy the regret that he had. Like he, It was imperative to make the atomic bomb because if they didn't, the Nazis were going to. But that started this domino effect that's never going to stop with like, we're going to find reasons to use these weapons, and they're only weapons of mass destruction, and it's only going to tear humanity apart more. So I do buy the regret that he had, and he was talking about in his hearing, 
And he, I mean, that's the hammer moment after Jason Clark and has the atomic bomb scene with the light going over him in the interrogation and the music co- comes up to this climax. And it's like, you know, essentially he says, when did you change your mind about your feelings towards the bomb? And in Oppenheimer's response basically was when I knew whenever we had it, we would use it. So clearly I, I, I don't think Christopher Nolan's mincing any words with, with this storyline. No, it's cynical. You have, you have all of these arguments weaved into the screenplay about how hubris kind of had a perfect storm where, yes, you start out with the Nazis. They can't have it. It's, it's us or them. And it's better. We can be trusted. They cannot. And it graduates into this Oppenheimer line of logic where he is influencing foreign policy. And we know this because it's told to us later in this FBI FBI hearing that he picks Hiroshima. He makes sure that this bomb is detonated at a certain height to cause maximum damage. He is behind this strategy. It's to, to the point where he even says to the guy, hey, you better you know, detonate it here. And the guy's like, I'll take it from here. But we realize later that Oppenheimer said to to everybody that my new rationale my new rationale even after germany dropped out and he makes this speech to the to the group that was meeting right we need we need to make this bomb as this is sick to even say it but we need to make this bomb as destructive as it can be to end all war because war would be unthinkable after this. And, and Kenneth Branagh's character mentions as much, too. Is it big enough? Big enough for what? Big enough to end all war? I mean, the, the, Nolan is not mincing words. This is the clearest rationale ever representing what the rationale of the time was. So he, he's very clear in this regard about the Promethean ego. And yet, he I did not expect a full Act 3 about the quote-unquote Promethean punishment the eagle eating the intestines for all of eternity, that he, J. Robert Oppenheimer, knowingly wants to the point where Emily Blunt's character will say to him, you knowingly... He needs to pay a penance. He feels he needs to pay a penance for what he's done. Yeah, now that you've been tarred and feathered, is is this enough? Do you think they'll forgive you? They won't. Yeah, do you think being tarred and feathered like that is going to be enough for them to forgive you? And he says, we'll see. I mean, he clearly does. This is his martyrdom. And, and and that's we, the tension with his relationship with Straws too. Is I mean Straws really has him dead to rights. But he knows, I think, he knows what Straws is going to do at that. Point. I agree with that. But I, but I think when Straws is when Straws is unraveling at the end and he's like I gave Oppenheimer exactly what he wanted. He wanted to be a martyr and he didn't want blood on his hands. And I gave him that opportunity. I mean Straws knows that he knows. Yeah, I mean Stra- Straws is he's not wrong. Right? Like, the only part he was wrong about is that Oppenheimer still felt guilt over it. And and Lyndon B. Johnson was a dick to him about it. Mm-hmm. Which is a... Cri- uh, or tr- Truman. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, tr- Gary Oldman, we'll call him. Gary Oldman <laughs> playing Harry S. Truman, which was... I agree with Ann Thompson. That was distracting. You think so? Right. To, shouldn't they have... I, or do you, did, did that work for you? I, 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 don't was, I, I don't know much about the Truman character, so I didn't really mind. So That's a crazy, infamous historical scene 
where Oppenheimer meets Truman. Calls him a crybaby. And apparently all of that really happened, where he calls him a crybaby, kicks him out of his office. Oppenheimer does say to Truman that he has blood on his hands, feels like he has blood on his hands, and that was the worst thing you could have said to the guy who's dealing with all of the feelings of actually dropping these two bombs and giving that order as the commander-in-chief, right? Yeah. I mean, this is that was clearly painted to be to give you negative feelings and make you more sympathetic to Oppenheimer's character. Right. So this is like this blame game is unique in, in historical dialogue, I would say, because I feel like Nolan is also saying, well, the government is just as culpable as Oppenheimer. Right. I mean, and yet we still have Oppenheimer trying to keep control over his invention, at least for the, according to Robert Downey Jr., the celebrity days of him being the father of the atomic bomb. And that was a fascinating... Well, this is what makes it such a great movie, is that, like, there's so many layers to all of this stuff that I don't... I think it's impossible to... And I don't even know that Nolan knows, and maybe that's why he left... I mean, this is this is akin to the totem spinning at the end of Inception, right? Like, there's so much stuff to talk about in the in terms of what your interpretation of what everyone's motivations and actions were. Yeah, and I, I just think, like, the ego jousting that they portrayed between Straws and Oppenheimer, I mean, that it essentially parallels what's happening in the arms race between us and Russia and us and everybody and, and ultimately, you know, all of the, the, the ego jousting that they're becomes war hawking and, and war in general, right? Because you, you just watch, rewatch those straws Oppenheimer scenes. It, it's f- absolutely fascinating. The first, the first one where straws is inviting Oppenheimer to become the department head at Princeton, right? For this research group that he does hire him for Oppenheimer immediately makes fun of straws who he thinks pronounces his name to hide his Jewish Jewishness Mm -hmm. just walking out of the car. Oppenheimer makes a joke about how Oppenheimer Oppenheimer. My name sounds Jewish no matter what. And then straws who's offended says he's actually the leader at their local temple. And it's a regional pronunciation. Like, holy shit. These guys hate each other immediately. Mm -hmm. Oppenheimer asks straws if he's a student of science. And he goes, no, I'm a self-made man blustering. And Oppenheimer says, I can relate. My father was one of those. Again, kind of admitting, okay, you have the upper hand, F you. I mean, this is horrible. And then, like, wait, you were just a lowly shoe salesman. Yeah, this is the the male fragility bullshit. I mean, these are the guys who are calling the shots on everything. Yeah, I'd love to introduce you to Einstein. No, I I had no need. I've Mm -hmm. known him for years. F you again. You know, the misinterpreted snub there is, like, the worst thing that Robert Downey Jr. cites Cillian Murphy's character ever did to him to turn all the scientists against him was actually the, the fact that that was a miscommunication and total misunderstanding which which kind of is every war ever right that the once blood is spilled good god can't go back yeah yeah and and all, all of those scenes are like that I wrote down like the same back and forth between all of these straws Oppenheimer scenes the wedding scene and all the slights there the remember the big table with the huge plant that they finally move that was you distracting know, that was far more distracting than Gary Oldman as the president <laughs> but you you have the big argument between Oppenheimer and you know these are like these are supposed to be like based on the record because they're in black and white right or at least some of them uh, and then Oppenheimer's in color memories 
which is supposed to be his recollections of it, you know, you have Straws being this, like, hidden, you know, mustache-twirling villain to an extent. So that's why I think, like, Nolan is supporting the fact that Oppenheimer, with the dialogue of the movie, and then the documentary really supports it, especially with Oppenheimer's kind of his exile by the end of the film or by, by the end of the, his life in re- real time this documentary which is a companion piece to end all war it's on peacock right now christopher nolan's interviewed how many times in it and they talk about oppenheimer and they show all of his teary-eyed interviews when he's after his security clearance is revoked to where i let now i can't comment on on foreign policy because i'm not in the room anymore and he essentially gave up and, and it, what happens there's dark years quote-unquote dark years and guy gets throat cancer because he smoked like a chimney mm. his whole life and he and he dies so like this <laughs> but he was railroaded he was railroaded i mean so that's why this is like a fascinating uh excavation into hubris and yet and blame gaming well, right it, I, well, I it's also it's 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 also historical in, in the in the idea that this is not the first time that such accounts have happened historically with by the government, like there is this this dark history if you do if you dig enough where the United States government has propped up people that it's needed to use in the past, and then when they need yeah. a scapegoat <laughs> to not put it so delicately, they they are able to turn propaganda and turn the tide against certain people that they relied on, and and but- it's. It's amazing. The whole the whole ethos of the movie kind of comes down to the conversation at the lake between Einstein and Oppenheimer. Einstein's like, look, man, you're right. going to get screwed over and you know it. But at some point, they're going to forgive you and everything's going to be all fine. But when that happens, you know, it's not going to be for you. Like, you're just a pawn in the machine here. So apparently that was the only quote unquote scene where something to history was given to another character. Like Einstein didn't say that to him. That was another scientist mm-hmm. who apparently said that to him, but I, it was just too irresistible for Nolan, Nolan's artistic right. license to give that back to Einstein. Because of course Einstein and him did have real conversations about the end of the world. So that was too symmetrical and it beautifully played out by the way. I mean, that was to talk about a goosebump ending, you know, to, to have those to be the last shots, last scene of the movie heading into the all the, the doomsday uh, visions in Oppenheimer's brain, and we're just staring into his face, cross-cutting with all the missiles going into the atmosphere. Holy shnikey. So, mm. yeah, I, I think that worked. But, it's, it's you know, it's, it's not a light touch. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, they, I mean, look, for as much as is left open to interpretation in this movie, and I think there is tons, and I think they may, it makes great conversation pieces, What's not left open to interpretation, I think, is how Nolan feels about um, our government. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the United States' history in war and the war economy and how much it drives so many of our decisions and how much of it, it rests on, again, male fragility and insecurity. These are message movies, yeah. It's an ego joust third act between those two principal characters. And, and, and when... And when when the dastardly Louis Straws is defeated at the end, I mean, and Robert Downey's performance in that scene with Alden Ehrenreich's performance yeah. in that scene, he's like, I'm denied. Oh, good. And, and he's doing a thousand things with his face. He reminds me of Roger Stone. If you ever seen Roger Stone's deposition video where he's just like wow. half an animal, like 
literally grinding his teeth and trying to like hold back this unabashed rage that you can see seeping through. Incredible, incredible performance work. And yet, yeah, and, and Einstein's performance work, that scene is a, like you're saying, it's, it's the spinning top moment uh, in many ways. I, it's both the Einstein scenes. I'll tell you, this Nolan guy, keep an eye on him. <laughs> well, he's he's earned himself another blank check to do whatever oh, the hell he wants. Well, no, he doesn't need a blank check. He could use his own money now if he's getting 20% of the gross of this movie. <laughs> exactly right. Um, I like I feel bad I feel like I did terribly this episode because there's so much more to talk about, but it's all theoretical stuff. Like it's all interpretive well, stuff. We wrote 17 pages. We could have wrote another yeah. 17 pages. Like I want to I want to get into the thoughts about like how much I feel like you and I differ on how how much Oppenheimer where the line between his involvement in picking the cities like I, do you think he ever actually wanted to drop the bomb he says as much I know he he's, does he does say as much and then he's horrified by the fact that they were hoping or thinking they would kill 30,000 apiece, 60,000 people, and they ended up killing 210,000 people. Oh, Jesus. How that guy and, ever had peace? No, and he never did. Yeah. And you watch his face in these real-life interviews, and he's saying the the death toll should have never been this high. And that's why, you know, he, to his credit afterwards, he tried to stop the hydrogen bomb from being made he spent the rest of his life trying to do that and yet the it is weird because the movie does position him as soon as the trinity test is over he's having these visions of the horrors that the bomb could do but that's mm-hmm. not enough to stop him from recommending the two cities yeah, i i think my question before or where i was going to interrupt you before just dawned on me now like the paradoxical thinking and the fact that they talk about his science his scientific discipline is based on paradoxical thinking that light is made up of waves and Mm -hmm. matter or whatever i forget what it was i'm not a smart i'm not a smart enough to know it but (laughs) the paradoxical thinking of him actually green lighting the research to mr teller safty's character for the hydrogen bomb but quote unquote denying it's evolution at every step that he can after obviously after the the atomic bomb was used and he and he in the hearing he explains why he's like like you said once you have the weapon i know you have a proclivity to use it or you you, you might use it i'm using that word wrong mm. that's my great terror and of course at the end of the movie he's like yeah i think we just we just doomed the world see that's why i think to, to me my I, that scene where he's where they're taking the bomb away from him at Los Altos, I think that was him saying like, "Oh shit, I'm not going to be involved anymore." Oh shit, this is out of my hands. I think his hubris, my interpret, my understanding was that his hubris was thinking, "There's no way they're going to be able to use this without me." So at least I'll be in control the, of it. The coldness of those scenes were, were brilliantly done. Where yeah. Matt Damon is like, "Oh yeah, well." I'll keep you. Uh, I'll, I'll keep, keep you abreast as, as best I can. Best as I can, walking away, yeah. and then yeah, the other soldier. We got this now. Right. The bombs driving away, and then of course the guy across sitting across from. Oh, until somebody builds a big, bigger right. bomb. By the way, I'm I'm working I'm on build that. a bigger bomb. <laughs> and he's like, oh shit, yeah. yeah. So that's why he can't sleep at all, and he's up in the middle of the night, 
smoking a cigarette until he has to learn, like everybody else, that the bombs were dropped by listening to the radio. You can't hear Truman. Yeah, you can't get a call back from uh, Matt Damon's character. Yeah. Uh, all right, final grades, Michael. I actually bumped it up to the A minus range here. Like I said, it, there's, there's some issues that I have with the movie. I don't think it's necessarily a subtle <laughs> work of fiction, but it's it's masterclass level filmmaking. Um, and it's an A minus 90, probably 90, 91 in there. Yeah, I'm It's going to be top five on the year for me. I'm the exact same. I have a 90, A minus. That's funny. Wow. Same noms, same grade. Two, two movies in a row with the same grade. Look at us. Well, we came up together. Making progress. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> uh, as always, dear listener, what matters most to us are your grades, your thoughts. What did you think of Oppenheimer and the Barbenheimer weekend as a whole? Let us know all that as well as any other thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns you have about anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. As always, you can leave those on our social medias. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available wherever you do hear podcasts. If you listen to us on either the Apple Podcasts or Spotify, app if you appreciate what we do here if you wouldn't mind leaving us a five-star review those help us out immensely thank you to everyone who has done so thus far michael we're out of blockbuster movies to review from this weekend alone so tell the good people what's coming next and let's have some words of wisdom well some words of wisdom i think speak directly to you and i i'm on your side don't get me wrong but film twitter has won nicole kidman has won <laughs> you have fought good fights against them but all hail Barmenheimer, you are the champions. Film Twitter yeah. made this happen in many a ways. Mm-hmm. They lit the fuse. No? Yeah. Uh, this was this was this weekend was certainly a <laughs> a championing of the ridiculousness of the power of the internet. <laughs> the, this is the greatest achievement in the history of film Twitter. <laughs> now what hath you wrought, Film Twitter? What I like this. Like, now we're just gonna think about long term consequences for everything. Listen, we can have a whole episode on the future Barbenheimers, mm. and we can mix and match, and maybe we'll do that in our in our uh, Venice. I saw somebody on Instagram Film Festival because Saw mm-hmm. Ten and Paw Patrol movie are coming out in the same weekend, <laughs> and somebody said, Ew. "How Saw Patrol?" <laughs> Ew, ew, yeah, no, that, that's forever. That's coming yeah. forever for the next forever. This could um, be a way in which the studios, yeah, combine their powers and. But even even if not, like, what's to stop a studio from trying to manufacture the same thing themselves and just take two of their own movies that they think would be counterproductive? Because it doesn't work. Anyway. No. Gen Z will see right through it. Okay. Anyway, we're going to do a summer Oscar betting episode with a friend, David Long, that mm-hmm. I've been promoting for too long now uh, because we, we, we couldn't recorded earlier than this but thank you to david that we're we're actually going to get to to finally do this i'm excited about it because we got some odds and betting lines to dissect that we got to dive into on on many categories so that that's very necessary and i think appropriately timed because now we're gonna have the month of august where we have enough heavy heavy hitters already released on the calendar we know some film festival movies that are going to come out so we'll have an oscar race checkpoint going over the venice and tiff lineups maybe some more box office talk but uh those those episodes are coming we'll have a big teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem film study and i'll give you one guess <laughs> at who our co-host is going to be for been, that like, folks traveling the world she is insane i don't know when she sleeps 
all of these things are coming and we're, we're gonna we used to do like a summer oscars report or i'm sorry we used to do a mid-year report but it, it's past the mid-year point so we're gonna call it a summer oscars report that and, so, and these back-to-back movies were the, the i mean this is yeah <laughs> these are big oscar movies these are big Oscar movies, so we, we got a lot to talk about in terms of kind of starting to figure these races out. I mean, it's cool that we, we're going to we know something now mm-hmm. about these races, at least in terms of who the front runners are. Uh, otherwise, I feel like after studying this movie for three times and watching the documentaries and listening to all the interviews, I need to see Barbie again now. <laughs> Don't you? Like, As a palate cleanser? I need a Barbie again. Can you imagine if this Robert Downey Jr. is up against that Ryan Gosling and supporting actor? (laughs) Talk about two varied performances. They need to create different categories. (laughs) Yeah, so maybe I'll like take my mom to Barbie or something. I don't know what I'm gonna do. It's uh, like because I'm looking at like the rest of this week. Like I want to see Cobweb and Talk to Me and these horror movies. I I don't know if I I can handle those. I've never. But I was gonna say root again for the demon and talk to me because screw those kids but then it made me think of how everyone was shitting on the exorcist trailer which was not that bad it was not that bad but it wasn't great like the i, I would say this the first minute of that trailer is awesome like i'm hooked yeah what, what do you want <laughs> the finish of that trailer is 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 throwback horror movie trailering right because all of those like freeze frames and frozen images and cut to the black and white coloring book thing, you know, outline of the characters. That's like the original Exorcist trailer to a T, no? Didn't they just re- redo it? Redux it? Yeah, I think. I mean, it, it gave me a throwback vibe for sure. Yeah. So, well, I mean, we'll see. It, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. <laughs> I was just you surprised like that All right. nobody was talking about it midweek. I, I thought it was fine. I, I didn't... You know, it wasn't great, but I was like, it's fine. I think film Twitter disliked that trailer at large, but they were so giddy over the Barbenheimer that they didn't even care to mention it. <laughs> I don't think you should hold that trailer up to the quality of Barbie or Oppenheimer. <laughs> Maybe that's what true. True. Uh, all right, guys, when mm. reality sucks, you can dress half in pink and half in total black and white with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round. Without the stuffiness, we will see you all very soon. (laughs) See ya.